Several weeks ago, I was here and I was preaching uh, two Sundays on practices that will bring success in the Christian life. And what is success in the Christian life? Well, success in the Christian life is when you really are seeking God's will and God is present with you and you sense his presence and you seek to fulfill his purpose and you really enjoy life, even the bumps and the stumbles. How can you live that life? Well, I shared with you six things that in my experience for me have really helped me in that. Let me just briefly give you those six things. We won't preach the sermons again, thankfully. Uh, First is ongoing communication with God, you know, through prayer and reading Scripture. Uh, The next one is keeping short accounts with God. Don't let sin mount up, but confess and repent and even make restitution where necessary. The next one is learning to walk by faith, simply trusting God's Word and, uh, and seeking to obey Him in everything He tells you to do. The next one is serving Serving God through the church, serving in a community, wherever God gives you an opportunity. The fifth one, or fourth, uh, fifth one, I guess, is soul winning, that is being a constant lookout, being on the constant lookout for lost people to be able to share the gospel. And the last one is being a good steward of your time, your treasure, and your talent. And today I want to sort of cap those things off with one more practice that I believe will help you more than anything else if you follow these seven things in being a strong Christian and really enjoying the Christian life. And it is this, being willing and able to do spiritual warfare against the enemy. You have an enemy, a sworn enemy who's trying to destroy your spiritual life. Now, be sure that I'm not saying something uh, that you, uh, you're not hearing something I'm not saying. Satan cannot steal your soul. He can't steal your soul. And I remember uh, Flip Wilson, comedian of yesterday, said this. He said, the devil made me do it. Remember that? Some of you remember Flip Wilson? Here's the truth. The devil cannot make you do anything. He can't do it. Now, he will try. He will try to influence you. He will tempt you. And the big question that sometimes we have is, why does God still allow Satan to exist? Well, I don't know all the reasons, but part of the reason is Satan is God's tool to sharpen us and to mature us, and to prepare us for heaven. And one day, according to Scripture, he'll get his due. He'll be uh, cast into the lake of fire forever and forever. So the Scripture this morning that I want you to share with me as I read it out loud is Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10. You can follow it in your Bible, if you will. It's going to be on the screen. And I hope you'll turn over to the back page of your bulletin. You'll see some notes if you want to take notes, and I'll try to give you some things that will encourage you and help you remember that. So let's look right into the Word this morning. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood, enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor, so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will see still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news, so that you will be fully prepared In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. 
Stay alert and be persistent in all your prayers for all believers everywhere. Amen. This is God's word. Pray with me if you will. Our Father, we come to the scripture because we know it has truth. And we know that your truth is designed to teach us the way we should go in, to encourage us in that way, and Lord, to to help us when we stumble. And I pray today that your word would speak to each person here, each one who has ears to hear, and those who even may listen to a recording of this message. Lord, let your word be strong to speak to all of us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you still have your Bibles open, I want you to just take a little note of verses 11 and 12 in the text. Notice that it says there that we're not fighting against a flesh and blood enemy. Your enemy, men, is not your wife or her mother, right? That's not your enemy. Your enemy, moms and dads, is not your teenage daughter or your teenage son. Your enemy is not the government. Your enemy is not some foreign nation. It's not even the IRS. Your enemy is a spiritual enemy. Notice what it says in verse 12. We're fighting against spiritual authority in high places. We're fighting against demonic forces. Now, just like we cannot visibly, physically see God at the present time, you cannot see the enemy forces that are against you with your eyes. But they do take on shapes and forms, and they take on methods and ways that we can detect and we can discern. And we'll talk about that in just a little while. But don't forget that the enemy is real. The devil has certain designs for your life, certain desires for your life. And though we won't get into all the details of it in this series, know this. He is a very powerful foe. He is not nearly as powerful as God, but he's stronger than you are, though he can't steal your soul. But here it is. He is a defeated foe. Satan has been defeated, and it happened when Jesus died on the cross and said the last thing it's recorded that he said, Tetelestai, it is finished, it is completed, it is over, there is no more to be fought for, the victory has been won. Even though the battle still rages in the sense that we still struggle with Satan, the battle is over in the sense that Christ is victorious and Satan is defeated. So for a little while this morning, I want us to think about these three things. What are his desires? And I'm going to list three of them, among others. How do we defeat him? What are the weapons of our warfare? And then the last thing is, how do we apply these weapons? That's what your sermon notes are all about. And if you write things down or to help you remember them, whether you write down what I say or not, do something to help you remember what God is saying to you this morning. So three things that the devil will try to do to you in your life on a daily basis. Number one, he will try to lead you to sin. Now, we get a lot of information about what the devil will try to do from one of the primary texts in the Bible about Satan. And that text is Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, you remember the story, Adam and Eve are living quite comfortably and quite well in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Up to this time, uh, it may be that a few days has passed. It seems like that when you go from chapter 2 to chapter 3. But I believe that probably several years, maybe decades, could be centuries passed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. In Genesis 2.17, God said, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. It's forbidden fruit. When you eat from that tree, you'll die. 
In fact, I love the way the King James Bible puts it, the day you eat from that tree, you will die. And so Adam and Eve lived happily and joyfully. And then that day came that's recorded in chapter 3 when they were approached by a serpent, beautiful animal that spoke. Now, I don't know all the details of how God did this or why God allowed this. Let's, let's just assume that he did because the Bible puts it that way. And the serpent began to entice, to lead Adam and Eve into sin. He tried to get them to do what God said, don't do. They came to the place where they believed the lie of the devil rather than believing the truth of God. And we'll see a little bit, Lord willing, as to how that fits in to the tools, the weapons that we have to fight against him. So that's what he wants to do to you. He wants you to believe a lie. He wants you to sin because when you're sinning, you're not glorifying God. When you're living in sin and you know that your lifestyle isn't pleasing to God, you're not going to be a witness for Christ. You're not going to be a strong testimony for Christ. He will have won a victory, though he hasn't stolen your salvation. He will have won a victory if he gets you to sin. The next thing he wants to do is to keep you from close fellowship with God. Notice what happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, when they both ate the fruit that God said, don't eat from this tree. What did they do? Well, the first child or consequence of sin is a guilty conscience. And in their guilt, they recognized their nakedness, and they tried to cover themselves. And in their guilt, they tried to hide from God. They knew that there was a a special time that God was going to come by, and they were going to fellowship with God. And so instead of presenting themselves to God and confessing their sin, what did they try to do? They hid from God. And you know, I find, I think, uh, in my life, as well as others I've talked with about this, that when we get out of God's will in one way or the other, when we sin and do something we know we shouldn't do, and and many times we even live in a pattern of sin, we don't want to pray. We feel guilty. It's almost we try to hide from God. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's why we have some Christmas and Easter members. They're kind of hide from God, among other reasons. They don't feel righteous, and they don't feel like facing God and dealing with God, and so they don't read their Bibles, they don't have much of a prayer life, they're not involved in serving God, they're certainly not involved in witnessing for the Lord, and Satan has won a victory. He keeps people from close fellowship with God. And the third thing we see in Genesis 3, and I think we could see others, is that makes a person an ineffective witness for Christ. If you live in sin, if you know that your life is a sinful life, there are things you do that are sinful, you will not be an effective witness for Christ. That doesn't mean you have to be perfect to be a witness. But you see, a person who is a witness for Christ is one who, if he sins, deals with that sin appropriately. What do you do when you sin? You confess it before the Lord. You repent of it. That means you turn around from it and go in a different direction. And if need be, you make restitution. You apologize or you repay what you have stolen or whatever it may be. And the devil would like to keep you ground under by the weight of your sinfulness, by the lack of fellowship with God, and to keep you from sharing the gospel with somebody who's lost. Now think about this, and I'm not trying to incriminate you, I'm just trying to point out a real truth. How long has it been since you told somebody your testimony? How long has it been since you really shared the gospel with a lost person? Trying to help them come to know Jesus Christ. You see, if you haven't done that recently... 
Or maybe you can't even remember ever doing it. Satan has won a victory in your life. You don't have to say amen, just say, oh me. Yeah, oh me. He's done it. So how do we fight this enemy? Wonderfully, in this passage, we have six, no, seven tools. We might even say, instead of tools, there are weapons. And here's the way this is to be interpreted, I believe, and this is what you'll see in the sermon notes this morning. The way God gives us this weapon against Satan reveals to us the kind of attack that he's going to give us. Keep that in mind. The weapon reveals the enemy's tactic. Let's look at the first one and see. Uh, and, and this is an oddity. I don't know why it's this way. But over the years, I've asked a lot of people about spiritual weapons. I say, now, when you think about the spiritual weapons that God has given us in Ephesians 6, without looking in your Bible, I would say, what is the first one the Bible mentions? You know what most people say? Shield of faith. I don't know why it's that way. This is what people remember. But it's amazing how these gifts are given to us, these weapons are given to us, in a, an order of importance, we might say, And the first one is the belt of truth, the belt of truth. You see, a Roman soldier would probably wear a flowing robe of some sort, and when it was time to go to battle, he would bring his garment up around his waist and attach a belt around that garment to be able to keep it out of his way while he was fighting. Also, he would have the scabbard for his sword on that belt. So what is this all about? Well, here's the truth of it. We have the belt of truth because the devil will attack us with lies to try to deceive us. Now, have you ever heard the devil or seen the devil attack you with lies? Do like this. Even if you don't agree with me, do like this for a minute because it's true. You turn on your television and you see this toothpaste commercial. And if you do what this toothpaste commercial wants you to do and buy their product, they promise you that your teeth will be whiter than they've ever been before. And that your smile, if you're a lady, will attract the young men. And if you're a young man, your smile will attract the young ladies, right? Is that, a, is that the truth? It's a lie, isn't it? And in a similar fashion, multitudes of times, day in and day out, you are told lies by the advertising energy empire to try to get you to buy their product. In a similar fashion, the devil will tell you lies to get you to follow his way instead of God's way. Let me give you one example, which is such a predominant example in our society that even now we overlook it and, and don't say a lot about it. It has to do with sexuality. You know, the the world today says that it's okay for two people to have sex as long as they don't hurt anybody. But you know what the Bible says? If you have sex before you get married with somebody, anybody, it's fornication, which is a sin against God. If you are married and have sex with anybody besides your marriage partner, it's called adultery. And both of these are wrong according to God's Word. But you know what the world says? It's okay. It's all right, doesn't matter. Even so much sometimes that young moms and dads will often even help their sons or daughters, especially daughters, use birth control so that they'll be able to have sex. And young couples, they come to me to get married, and I say, well, tell me about your relationship, and I'll discover they're living together or something. I say, well, now, why do you want to do that? Well, pastor, they'll say, this young man will say, you know, I wouldn't buy a car without trying it out, preacher. I said, hey, you're not buying a car. 
you know. It's not like buying a car. And there are so many excuses and so many things that kids say and young people say and parents give their approval, it seems, at times. All this thinking that this is okay when God says it's a lie. So what do you do? Well, you stand on the truth. You stand on the truth. And the first thing you need to ask in any situation about any moral decision is this, what is the truth? I've done a lot of counseling as a pastor over the years, and oftentimes somebody would come to my office with an issue, maybe a a business issue or a family issue. Most of the times it's a family issue or a spiritual issue. And after hearing them speak to me what their problem, what their issue is, I say to them, what's the truth about the situation? And a lot of times people just go on the world's opinions. They just go on how they feel. But the Bible says we have a weapon that is against Satan that will defeat the enemy every time. If you apply this weapon, it is truth. Jesus said you will know the truth and what will happen. The truth will set you free. And a lot of people live under some uh, burden uh, in some kind of an imprisonment by their circumstances Because they don't live by the truth. Okay? That's the first weapon we have. The second weapon is one that may also be surprising to some people. It is the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate of righteousness. Now, what does it mean to have on a breastplate of righteousness? Well, you know, a breastplate is what a soldier would wear in ancient times to protect themselves from something piercing their heart or their lungs, or kidneys, or other vital parts of their human anatomy. And so this breastplate, usually made of some kind of metal, would deflect, hopefully, uh, enemies coming forth with a knife, or a sword, or a spear, or whatever they may have. And so this breastplate, though, is not a physical breastplate, but a spiritual breastplate. It is the breastplate of righteousness. So what is righteousness? Righteousness means that I have a right standing with God. In other words, it means that when God sees me, he doesn't see my faults and my mistakes and my sins. He doesn't see how dirty, rotten sinner I am. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ instead. God does not take us into his kingdom and say, one day I'm going to clean you up. No, no. He only takes us into the kingdom after he's cleaned us up. And how does it clean us up? Through the death of Jesus. And so if you are a Christian, born again by the blood of the Lord, if you have truly received that Holy Spirit, that new birth experience, you are righteous before God. He doesn't see the lies you've told. He doesn't see the sins you've committed. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And he declares there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's nothing about you that keeps me from respecting you and loving you and even liking you. And so that's the breastplate. So what would the the devil try to do? He would accuse us and make us feel unworthy of God's love. You ever have those little thoughts come into your mind when you get ready to pray? It says, you think God's going to hear your prayers or what you've done? You know? As, as ugly and bad as you've been, you think God's going to hear your prayers? What do, you, what do you reply? Hey, I'm righteous before the Lord. I know that I've sinned. I know that my life hasn't perfectly pleased God, but I'm also the child of God. And I'm invited to come boldly before the throne of grace because of the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to me. I don't earn it. 
I receive it. I don't work for it. It's a gift of God. And so that's my weapon against any accusation of the devil to make me feel bad, to make me feel guilty when I'm not guilty before God. Another time we'll talk about this perhaps, but you know there's a a false guilt and a true guilt. False guilt is Satan's attempt to accuse you and he does not ever point out any specific sin that you've committed. It's just a sense of guilty that you feel and you can't put a finger on it. Real guilt is by the Holy Spirit, and he pinpoints directly what it is you've done wrong that you need to confess and that God forgives. Now, you don't pay for that. That's extra. That's just lanyap, as they say in New Orleans. Number three, we have the shoes of the gospel. What? Satan attacks us with fear in order to keep us quiet. You see, one of the main jobs of a Christian is to share the gospel. Some people in the church say, well, that's the preacher's job. That's why we hire staff. We have preachers and ministers of all sorts, and their job is to go out and win the lost, and we have missionaries to go all over the world to win the lost. Our job is to come on Sunday and give our tithes and offerings to pay their salary so they can go out and do the ministry for us. Now, you probably really don't believe that, but a lot of Baptists act that way. (laughs) They act that way. Of course, what I like to tell them is, you know, you pay me to be good. You all are good for nothing. I mean, no, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say that, but that would be the implication of that. All of us are in this together. And pastors and staff members of churches, which are really all pastors as well, our job is to coach you and to play with you on the playing field. Our job is to prepare the saints for the work of ministry. Read Ephesians 4. Wonderful passage about that. So, what does this have to do with the shoes fitted for the gospel? Any of you ever seen, now, it's okay to watch this program. Uh, I'm not trying to condemn you if you do. But anybody ever see that show, Naked and Afraid, on TV, and you're willing to admit it? You know, the prototype for that show was filmed in West Virginia. It was called Naked and Skirt. But uh, when they made it mainstream, they, they changed it to Naked and Afraid. And, and I see that occasionally. My wife and I used to binge watch that. Every, every week we'd watch that show. And you know what the hardest thing I believe to be would be, uh, to be on that program would be to go out there without any shoes on. I mean, I'm a tenderfoot. I have a hard time walking across my living room without any shoes on, at least the wood for it. I, I like the carpet for it, and that's okay. But, uh, so why is it that the shoes are so important? Because when you live in this world, you're going to be treading on places that are very uncomfortable for you as a believer. At work, do you have only Christians where you work? Some people say, well, you know, you work at the church. You're only around Christian people. Yeah, but you should see those people when it's not Sunday, right? (laughs) But we're in circumstances. We're in places all the time where we're not among friends who know the Lord and love the Lord. So what is our role? We're to have on strong shoes to be able to walk in those places, and we have the gospel of Jesus. And only maybe two or three minutes, you can share your testimony of how Christ has changed your life. And you say, but I'm not perfect yet. Well, praise the Lord, I'm not either, but he's working on me. Please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet, right? We understand that. And so God is working on us, but we need to be prepared to present Christ and share Christ with every person every time we meet someone every day. And that's our weapon. 
We can fight against the enemy when he tempts us by being prepared to share the gospel. Number four is when Satan attacks us, we have the shield of faith. And this is one that most everybody knows, but they don't really understand it. What does it mean to put up your shield of faith? Well, Satan makes us doubt. He wants us to doubt the scripture. He wants us to doubt the goodness of God. He wants us to doubt our salvation. And faith is the perfect antidote to doubt. Now, notice in the scripture, it says that we have a shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the devil. Picture in your mind, if you will, the kind of shield that this talks about. It's a shield that's probably five or six feet tall kind of squared off at the top and maybe curved a little bit. This shield was designed for a Roman soldier to actually hide behind. And he was hiding behind it, not because of hand-to-hand combat, because way out in the distance, maybe as far as two or 300 yards, would be archers with long bows that could easily launch an arrow that would go two to 300 yards with accuracy. And these arrows would be dipped in pitch, kind of like pine tar resin, and lit. And if this arrow would happen to strike you, not only would it burst open your skin and burst open some of your veins and blood vessels and perhaps even pierce an organ in your body, but it would also be very painful because of the fire. And so there had to be some method that the soldiers would be able to protect themselves. And this shield, the arrow would come into it, but it would not hurt anything and the flame would not hurt the shield. It was treated in such a way that the flame would not cause the shield to burn. Here's the truth. You will be bombarded every day with television, with things people say, with attitudes of our culture that are fiery darts from the devil, and they will seek to make you doubt God's goodness. You ever have a friend who died from cancer? And your thought was, he was too young to die. What what God have in mind with that? Right, doubt. I mean, don't you just hate to see those commercials on television about starving babies? And you say, well, if God is so good, why does he let babies starve? And all these kinds of things the world keeps pounding us with as Christians, and the devil, as it were, is shooting these flaming arrows toward us, wanting us to give in to this doubt. And the Bible says the shield to deflect those arrows is faith. So what is faith? Well, faith, according to Scripture is obeying what God says. Let me give you a working definition that I hope everybody will learn. Faith is hearing God speak and acting on what God says. In the little book of James, James says, don't tell me about your faith, show me your faith. Don't tell me you believe, show me you believe. Genuine faith believes, but it also acts on that belief. God said to Noah one day, Noah, I'm going to bring a, a great thunderstorm. It's going to rain and rain and rain, and the flood's going to come, and everybody's going to be destroyed, but I want you to build a boat. I want you to build it this long and this wide and this high. I want you to get animals in this boat, and, and when that day comes, you and your family's going to be safe. And what did Noah do? He said, well, Lord, let me think about that for a little while. Did he say, Lord, uh, I've checked with the engineering department of the local city, and, and they, don't, they don't think they can license that product, that project. No, no. The Bible says he built a boat. God said, do it, and I think Noah went out in the woods and started cutting down trees and hewing out lumber. And I don't know how long it took him. It probably took a while. But there he was. He heard what God said, and he acted on what God said. God said to Abram one day, Abram, I want you to move from Haran over to a place called Canaan. He said, Lord, I've never been there before. How long am I going to stay? When am I going to get back? No, no. God said, go, and what did he do? He left. 
he went. And the Bible says in Genesis 15, uh, 15, 16, God counted it to him as righteousness because he obeyed. The Bible says it is by faith that we please God. Hebrews eleven six. mark that down. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not that it's unlikely. <laughs> it's impossible to please God. So how do you walk by faith? You hear what God says, you listen to it, and then you do what God says to do. That's all it is. And when the shield of faith is needed, it's when there are doubts that are coming in. God, what do we do? What do we say? How do we live? Well, what does God say? And you see, it's, it's a prerequisite to use the shield of faith that you know what the Bible says. You don't have to memorize it. But remember what your Sunday school teacher told you. Remember what the preachers tell you. Remember what you read in your devotional guide every day. The precepts, the concepts, the commands, the warnings of God's Word. These are the tools of faith. These are the basics, the bedrock of faith. And so when Satan tries to make you doubt or make you afraid or keep you from doing what God wants you to do, lift up that shield of faith and say, no, no, I believe what God says. I may not feel it. I may not understand it. I may not be able to figure it out. But if God said this is true, I'm going to stand on what God says, and that's going to extinguish the fiery dart from the enemy. Can you say amen at that? Somebody ought to say amen again. That wasn't very strong. Amen. God has given us his word that this will happen this way. The next piece of armor is a helmet, a helmet of salvation. You see, we need a helmet because the helmet protects the brain. And just like the helmet protects the brain, so does your helmet of salvation protect you from anything the devil can do to you. He can't steal your salvation. I've already said that two or three times. I want to keep on saying that. But sometimes Satan wants to bring back memories of our sins. Sometimes Satan wants to bring back memories that are things we just cringe. I mean, I've, I know you all wouldn't believe this, but I tell you it's the truth. I've done some things that I'd be really happy if I died before any of you all found out about it. <laughs> you probably have some of those things too in your closet, don't you? Some things I've said. Some things I wish I would have said that I didn't say. Some attitudes I've had. Some things I've done to people or against people. And you know, if the devil would just have his way sometimes, he would just kind of bring back those things to my mind. And what would I think? Oh man, am I really a Christian? Can, can I really be a Christian having done this stuff? And you know what my helmet of salvation reminds me? When Jesus died on the cross, how many of my sins did he die for? All of them. Can't put a number on that, can you? It wasn't just 10. It wasn't just, you know, some of the bad things. It was all things. And he died about 2,000 years ago, even long before I was a thought. And it was all of my sins, the past sins I've committed and the present sins and the future sins. He died for all of those sins. And Jesus said in John 10, you are in my Father's hand and and." Nobody can snatch you out of my father's hand. Nobody. I had a, a friend in college named Alfred. Alfred was a Methodist. And we used to argue back and forth and discuss religion. And it was all in, in friendliness. It wasn't any anger. And we came to this eternal security question. Eternal security. You may know it as once saved, always saved. That's probably not the best name for it, but that's the truth of it. And Alfred said, no, uh, you can lose your salvation. The Bible talks about falling from salvation. We went through all that. And 
Finally, I said, uh, Alfred, you know, the Bible says that we are in God's hand, and nobody can snatch us out of God's hand. He said, but you can snatch yourself. And I said, if you can snatch yourself out of God's hand, that means you're stronger than God is. And that's not true. I know you. You're not that strong. And so here's we have as a Christian a helmet that whatever doubt, whatever fear, whatever temptation the devil puts in our way, whatever sin we commit, we know that in Christ we have a helmet and that our salvation is secure in the Lord. We had a good friend some years ago who committed suicide. And a lot of people are ignorant about suicide. Is it the unpardonable sin? The answer is no. No, it's not. But there are times when even Christians become so discouraged and so disheartened about life, they they think that the easy way for them and, and to spare pain for everybody else is just to take their life and get out of here. What's another life from Satan? But if you're truly born again, even if you commit the sin of suicide, your helmet of salvation is in place, and you're going to be with the Lord sooner than he had planned, but he gives, us, he gives us the responsibility of morality, and we can do that. Now, here's number six. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, because the enemy attacks with distortion and denial. Back to Genesis chapter 3 again, what did the serpent say to Eve and Adam about the fruit? The serpent said, well, this fruit is the most beautiful fruit in the garden. This fruit is the most luscious fruit in the garden. I mean, it's, he said perhaps, he probably didn't, but maybe in my mind's eye, he said, this fruit's even better than bananas. All right? I don't believe anything's better than bananas, do you? But he said, this is the best fruit you've ever tasted. And thirdly, when you eat this fruit, it'll make you wise. You won't even need God. You'll know right from wrong. You can rule your own life. You won't need God to tell you what to do. So what did he do? He distorted the Word of God. He, he lied about the Scripture. And so she thought to herself, wow. So man, God didn't tell us those things about this fruit. And we, we know God, and if we could be more like God, and we could live like God and make our own decisions, wouldn't that be wonderful? And so instead of believing the truth of God's Word, they believed the lie that Satan told. They gave in to his denial of the truth of God's Word. They became deceived and ate the fruit. So how do we deflect Satan's lies? Well, you take the sword and you fight. And what is the sword? The Word of God. You don't have to fight your own battles. The Word of God will fight them for you. You don't have to defend the Bible. It's a lion. It can defend itself. All you have to do is know what it says. And it wouldn't hurt if you had some scriptures memorized. I mean, if you know John 3.16, you got a good start. And you can quote John 3.16 to the devil, and that will defeat him. How did Jesus face temptation when he was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil for 40 days, or after 40 days without food? He quoted scripture, didn't he? He quoted scripture. And so when you are attacked with lies, when you are attacked with distortions of God's word, which happens all day, every day in the media, you know, if you drive this car, you're going to be successful. I saw a commercial yesterday. I just got a, I just sort of made me laugh. 
But this young woman was in a job and she was in an office and she started dreaming about her dream job and what she would do if she was her own boss and she was making a lot of money. And the next thing you know, she was going out signing a lease for a new Audi. What could be a worse lie than that? That doesn't make you successful when you sign a lease. That just makes you a, a borrower. <laughs> that just puts you in debt for something you can't pay. And so you have the sword of the Lord which is the Word of God. And then the last thing, number seven, is prayer. We have the gift of prayer. Satan attacks us with busyness in order to keep us from serious prayer. Did you ever say to the preacher or somebody else, you know, I just don't have enough time to spend time in prayer. I knew a pastor once, and uh, I still guess I know him, but it's been many years since I saw him. And he said one time in a conference, he said, a lot of people come to me and say, uh, he was trying to teach his church members to pray 30 minutes a day. And some of his men said, Pastor, I don't have time to pray 30 minutes. I've set so much pressure in my job, and, and I've got young kids at home, and I've got all this stuff to do. And he said, well, i tell you what I'm going to do. You don't have time to pray 30 minutes a day. I'm going to pray that God would put you in jail for a while so you'll have enough time to pray, and you won't be hindered. How would you like that? You know? Be careful what you ask the preacher to pray for you about. God may give you your answer, but it may not be what you expect. But every person in this room has exactly the same amount of time. Did you know that? How much time do you have? I have 24 hours a day. What about you? You say, but you're retired. Well, not so. Uh, I'm like a lot of those retired people. I, I've got so much stuff going on now, I didn't know how I ever had time to work. Uh, you, you know some of those retired people. I haven't geared up that fast yet, but I'm working on it. Every one of us have discretion over some of those hours. I mean, you may have a job and you have to go to work to pay the bills to feed your family. Or you may have a sick loved one that you're in charge of and you have to give care. But there is a time, if you will make that time, spend in prayer. You'll never hear a person on his dying bed say to his survivors, oh, I wish I'd spent more time at work. Oh, I wish I'd made more money to leave to my kids and my grandkids. You don't hear that. But there are probably a lot of people who would say, oh, I wish I'd prayed more. You want to lay up enough prayers that will be answered for your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren long after you're gone in this world. Can you do that? Sure you can. Now, quickly, let me share with you how we can effectively defeat Satan. Number one, we ask the question, what is the truth? Keep asking that question. What is, is this really true? Number two, we defeat Satan by knowing that we are righteous before God by Christ's work, not by our performance, not by how good we've been, not by good intentions, but by the actual imputation, and that's a good biblical word, you might want to learn that's a legal term, we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Romans 8 is a wonderful chapter for that doctrine. The Bible says in Romans 3.22, and you can write this down as well, the righteousness of God is through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe, since there is no distinction. Number three, we defeat him by always being prepared to share the gospel. Number four, we defeat him by obeying what God says regardless of how we feel. Number five, we defeat him by knowing that the work of Jesus was finished once for all. He doesn't have to do anything else to forgive your Savior. He's already done that. And then number seven, we defeat him through 
prayer. And uh, number six, through the Word of God. Now, I started this series uh, way back when, and, and this morning I started it with this little thought. Two thoughts to leave you with. The first thought is this. Are you serious about being a successful Christian? I really believe that there are a lot of Baptists who say, well, I just want to make sure when I die I go to heaven. I'm not really interested in being holy. I'm not really interested in in being a witness. I'm not really interested in being uh, a good, solid Christian. What are you interested in? I mean, if you just want to go to heaven when you die, you're looking for a cheap insurance policy, right? Fire insurance, I might add. But when Christ comes into your heart and truly converts you and your, your soul has been turned upside down like 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if we are in Christ, we're new creatures. If you have been a new creature in Christ, there's something in you that yearns for more of God. There's something in you that wants to do the right thing, who wants to live the right kind of life, who wants to be successful, to honor God, and to bring yourself peace and satisfaction in this world. And so, assuming that, you really do want to be successful in your Christian life. Second thing, what is it right now, today, here, in this place, what is it that hinders you from being that kind of Christian? I mean, you won't be that kind of Christian overnight, but you can start on a path, and you will find day by day it gets brighter and, and better. Is there some sin that you've continue to do that brings some measure of pleasure and you're just not willing to give it up? Is that what it is? Is there some relationship that you're not willing to do what's necessary to make it right? Is there some grudge that you're holding against someone? I mean, what is it that keeps you from really seeking after God? I want to ask you today, are you willing to give it up and trust Christ for forgiveness and trust Christ to work out the details and say, Lord, whatever it takes, I'm yours put myself in your hands. I'm not going to ask you to come forward today. We're not going to have that kind of invitation. But I want you to get your hearts and minds open to God and listen to what God says and respond to him in faith. Yes, God, I hear what you're saying and I believe what you say is true. And I leave this place today wanting to act on the truth. Let's just close our eyes. I'd like to ask our musicians if you will uh, prepare to to play uh, Alleluia. I think it starts in a D, and uh, we can sing that a few times through. And and in the congregation, if you would just stand up right now wherever you are, just stand up with me, if you will. And I'm not going to ask you to get out of your seats or anything or to kneel or to come forward or raise your hand. I just want to speak to you as if we were in a room together, just the two of us. And I say, what is it that really hinders you? Is there some troubled area of your life, some troubled person in your life? Is there some uh, anger that you have toward God? Is there, is there something in your life that maybe it's beyond your control, but it's there, and you think that's the hindrance to keep you from fully going after God, being all out for God? Just tell him right now, God, this is it. Lord, I don't understand why it's here. Or maybe it's some besetting sin. Lord, I keep asking you to forgive me for this sin, but I just keep going back to it again. Lord, I'm sorry. I just can't seem to help it. Please help me to apply this spiritual weapon, this this truth of your word, so that I can be victorious and learn to overcome this sin. Just give it to God, you will, if you will.
And once you give that to God, you can rejoice.